Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I am your host Yashri Sharma. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond_headlines. That's B Y O N D underscore headlines. Microfinance and social enterprise have seen a rise in popularity since the turn of the 21st century. But what exactly are social enterprises? And is microfinance the golden bullet that can solve the problem of poverty? Today, joined by Professor Anne Armstrong, Professor Laura Doring, and Professor Musa Blimpo, we will dive into the topic of social enterprise and microfinance and discuss their role in addressing inequality and global developmental challenges. Stay tuned. So our first guest is Professor Anne Armstrong, who received her PhD from the Rotman School of Management. Her research has focused on the structures of the dynamics in social enterprises and B Corps, which basically are corporations that are beneficial to the society, and has co-authored multiple books on the social economy of Canada and the U.S. She has written articles on a variety of subjects from grinning and curricula to measuring the impact in the social economy. As of July 2021, Anne is serving the director of iCube, which is UTM's incubator for social enterprises and early stage startups from equity deserving communities. So thank you so much, Professor Armstrong, for taking your time to chat with us today. Oh, I'm really pleased to be here, Vicki. So I'm going to open the floor with a very broad question. Can you tell us about social enterprise and maybe briefly explain to us what different types of social enterprise there are? Yeah, Vicky, you described the question as broad. I would say the question was hard. And I'm not trying to be kind of a pedantic academic. There are many, many different definitions of social enterprise. But I try to use one that's simple. I don't think simplistic. But it's an organization that has at least two or three bottom lines. It is an organization that focuses on social justice, but using as tools some business practices. I mentioned a triple bottom line because some social enterprises certainly try to also be environmentally sensitive. And what makes a social enterprise special is that the social justice mission is paramount. That isn't to say that the organization is not interested in making money. The money goes to support the social justice mission, but at its it's about social justice and increasingly environmental justice. All the business owners can technically claim that they are a social enterprise, right? So what makes social enterprise stand out? Yep. No, and they do. Uh, I hear more and more people saying they're a social enterprise, and I realize that it's a trendy term, and they're, in my opinion, not a social enterprise. What it makes it critically different between a traditional for-profit and a social enterprise is that the social mission is embedded in the organization. Whereas if you're a traditional for-profit and nowadays you have to do something that suggests you care about society because it's just not acceptable anymore to be just pure capitalist, 
and then you bring on a project, you might do fundraising, you might support uh, some kind of activity that has social or environmental benefits, but that's a bolt on. And in the case of a social enterprise, it is embedded. And too often what happens in a traditional for-profit is let's say the economy is taking a rough turn as it is now, some of the things that tend to go quickly are those kind of social justice sort of fundraising activities and so on, because they of course take up time. Uh, and if you're in a desperate situation, those tend to go. But in a social enterprise, if th that would never go. Mm -hmm. What do you think are the roles that social enterprise play in today's society in Canada? I think that social enterprise has given uh, opportunities to people from equity deserving communities who have been cut out of the traditional Canadian workplace, opportunities to be able to create both a business and also affect some social change. The impact is very hard to measure. And so I don't want to give a sort of a quick glib answer, but certainly I think social enterprises offer a different way of understanding capitalism and providing economic empowerment to people who might not otherwise be so empowered. I can give you a quick example if that would be helpful. I just sure. picked it up and it has a lot of interesting connections to Rotman too, <laughs> uh, but uh, to a program at Rotman. I was talking to, I participated in a pitch and this person said that uh, she ran a social enterprise. So, of course, I thought, oh, I wonder if it really is a social enterprise, but I didn't say that. So she runs a chocolate company, but everyone who makes the beautiful packaging for this chocolate company are adults with autism. So she wow. provides dignified, properly paid employment for people who would be typically just not participating in the workplace and they don't participate not because they're not capable they participate because obviously people don't think that they're capable so her social enterprise provides a high quality product i've ordered some so i'll let you know later <laughs> but uh, she has people who are very marginalized uh giving them dignified employment and I mentioned there's a connection to Rotman because she works at the uh, gender and the economy area at the business school run by Dr. Sarah Kaplan. She's also doing a PhD focused again on how to provide social enterprise type initiatives for people who are marginalized. Mm -hmm. Following up to my previous question, do you foresee social enterprise as a tool that will help us to address the current global issue, like income inequality, gender-based violence, et cetera? Yes. yes. Yeah. I think the thing is that uh, Canada is still pretty behind the world in terms of social enterprise. If you look at the United Kingdom, you look at Bangladesh, you look at Italy, you look at the United States, there's lots of initiatives that are going on and they are focused, as I said, to combine social mission using business tools. So there's a huge opportunity to use social enterprise to address current social ills. The issue always is that they tend to be smaller and so I'm not at all a fan of scaling if, because if that doesn't help you achieve your mission, but 
when they're small, there is what we call the liability of newness. So they can be fragile. And mm -hmm. so I'm always cautious when people say, I'm going to start a social enterprise. I say, just before you get carried away, here are some wonderful things that you need to think about, both positive and also concerning. Yeah. And I'm, I'm guessing if someone's to start a social enterprise, they don't just have to focus on one area uh, to address. They can focus on both addressing, for example, income inequality as well as gender violence. Absolutely. And one area that seems to be getting more kind of focus in social enterprise is mental health, the lack of mental health services mm -hmm. uh, for all age groups. But I think particularly with the fallout from the pandemic for youth, need for social enterprise solutions is acute. Mm -hmm. Then do you think the helplines, would they be considered a social enterprise in your opinion? Probably not, because they're probably a standard non nonprofit. But it's a question that case by case, I would mm -hmm. have to make a determination. Because if they're completely grant funded, or donor funded, I would say no. Mm -hmm. But I don't, my interest in social enterprise is not to exclude, but at least to be remind people that it's not a loose term that you can throw around to basically make your brand good. Mm -hmm. uh, it's actually a technical design and there are many variations of them, but it is not basically a way to say that I'm not the capitalist that I appear to be. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think in that definition, Social enterprise just definitely very embraces the word inclusion or inclusivity. Yes. Uh, so me as business student, one of the first lessons that I've learned in the business school is that for an enterprise to operate, to work, they, their main purpose is to make a profit. But then in the case of social enterprise, they focus more on the social part. So right. I see this potential conflict of interest. Can you talk about how firms addresses this source of conflict? Yeah, I think the first thing I'd like to say, though, is that uh, the ideology that an organization is there to make a profit, and that's the maximizing shareholder wealth, is the thing to do, comes from, I think, now largely discredited neoliberal view of capitalism. And so there are many other economic models out there. And uh, whether they're indigenous economic models, there are some amazing uh, different economic models on the African continent. So that view of the purpose of business is to make profit is getting more and more criticized. I don't quite mm -hmm. know how that you can reconcile, but I would refer you to a very interesting article that's just come out in the New York Times that has an extremely fetching title. Have the anti-capitalist reached Harvard Business School? And it was sent to me by a colleague, and I don't know if the anti-capitalists have quite reached the business school, but let me give you a, just a quick few sentences because I think you'll find it adds to the interest among your, your audience. So this oh, is sure. uh, from this article, quote, top ranked business schools are stepping into the political arena. Harvard, 
started its Institute for the Study of Business and Global Society last month. Nearly half of the Yale School of Management's core curriculum is devoted to ESG. Next fall, the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania will start offering MBA majors in diversity, equity and inclusion, and another major in environmental, social and governance factors for business. So if those mainstream organizations are doing, mainstream business schools have woken up, I think that all business schools need to do that. And it may be through such kinds of majors that we can look at the issue of addressing the Milton Friedman approach to economics versus a much more socially and environmentally friendly approach to business. Mm -hmm. I agree. I definitely think that as business schools are heading towards a better or more inclusive direction. I look forward to see what the business school curriculum is going to look like in the next five years. That kind of leads to my next question. Well, I know you talked about an article that you just read, but for someone that's interested in uh, social enterprises or kind of uh, work that you do, is there a book that you recommend our listeners to read? There are many, many articles and even just going onto a website, just Google social enterprise, there's just an amazing set of resources that students can get access to. There are probably more books that I can think of, but certainly uh, people are starting to understand that social enterprise is something that they cannot dismiss. There's another book. And it is on social impact finance. It's called Adventure Finance. And it's written by perhaps the world expert in impact finance. And her name is Ani, A-U-N-N-I-E, Patton Power. Her work provides the sort of financial guidance that social enterprises and other organizations that are purpose and profit focused could draw on to be able to guide that journey so that they are being genuinely committed to at least two bottom lines. Thank you for the recommendation. And the last question for you is that because this week's topic is on microfinance, Can you maybe tell us a little bit about how social enterprise relate to microfinance? Microfinance is uh, not without its wrinkles. And what Mohammed Yunus thought was his dream has gone a little bit, in some cases, sideways. But there's probably no better example of social enterprise than the Grameen Bank and all the subsidiaries of the Grameen Bank, which Mohammed Yunus founded. So microfinance has become big business, but certainly it would be not unreasonable for a social enterprise perhaps to seek funding from microfinancial organizations. And I believe Ani in her book addresses some of those kinds of sources of funding and microfinance would be one where the values would fit because microfinance is there to empower the marginalized Social enterprise does that in part, 
by combining social and environmental missions using business tools. Thank you, Professor Armstrong. Next, we'll have Laura Doring talk about microfinance and the Grameen Bank with us. So stay tuned. Anyways, thank you so much, Professor Armstrong, for joining us for this episode. Oh, my pleasure. I can talk about social enterprise nonstop, so I'd better stop talking now. Once again, that was Professor Anne Armstrong who joined us for a discussion on what social enterprises are and their role in addressing global issues. Thank you for tuning in for Beyond the Headlines. Remember, you can join us in the conversation by tweeting at us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines, checking out our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net or by following us on Instagram at Beyond the Headlines. Our second guest is Professor Laura Dore, who is an assistant professor of strategic management with a cross appointment in the Department of Sociology. As an economic sociologist, she examines how interactions and social psychological processes shape outcome for groups, organizations, and markets. Her research has been published in the American Journal of Sociology, American Sociology Review, and etc. Professor Doring's research and writing has appeared in New York Times, BBC, Global Mail's, and Salon. Welcome, Laura. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, Laura, can I start off with a question and ask you to give us an overview about microfinance and how does it differ from ordinary term of finance? Sure. Microfinance consists of many of the same services included in traditional finance. These are things like loans or accounts where people can store money, so savings or checking accounts. What makes microfinance different is the size of the funds that are involved and the people who institutions target as clients. So in the traditional financial sector, they tend to target wealthier clients and the products are oriented towards larger sums of money. Microfinance, by comparison, is targeted towards uh, people who are poor or low income and who generally haven't had experience with the formal financial sector. The loans that they receive and their checking and savings accounts are generally associated with smaller sums of money. And this also makes these products more expensive than those of traditional financial products because the institutions are operating uh, on a smaller scale. I also think it's important to note that the umbrella term microfinance actually encompasses two very different types of organizations that offer microfinancial services. So on the one hand, we have the not-for-profit model of microfinance that was popularized by Muhammad Yunus, who, along with the Grameen Bank, won the Nobel Prize in 2005. And in this style of microfinance, not-for-profit organizations make financial products available to poor people. And we often think about these sorts of microfinance organizations. You know, we often have the image of women sitting in a circle under a tree in these rotating credit associations or group-based microfinance. And for these organizations, uh, the goal is basically just to earn enough money for the organization to sustain itself or to be able to lend out more money to other low-income people, but they're not out to generate profits for investors or for shareholders. On the other hand, the second type of microfinance is for-profit. Uh, and this is where commercial banks, who have learned from the nonprofits that offering financial products to poor people can be profitable. 
And these banks lend money and offer accounts to poor and low income individuals with the aim of generating profits for investors or shareholders. And the most dramatic example of this comes from an institution called Comportamos in Mexico. In Spanish, it means essentially let's share. Um, and in 2007, Comportamos went public. Um, they had an initial public offering and they raised over $400 million in U.S. capital. So that's very different uh, from the image that we often have of microfinance of that group of women sitting under a tree in, in a sort of mutual rotating credit association. So two, two very different styles of, of microfinance, and yet we refer to both of them by the same name. Yeah, that was a very thorough overview of uh, microfinance. <laughs> uh, then I have a follow-up question on that. Yeah. So how, to what extent would you say that microfinance alleviate poverty? both in the for-profit model as well as the non-profit model? Yeah, this is a question that many people have had, you know, especially after Muhammad Yunus won the, and the Grameen Bank won the Nobel Peace Prize. This was the big question that many people had. To what extent does this practice actually alleviate poverty? And what most of the research suggests is that microfinance actually doesn't do a lot to dramatically raise the income of micro entrepreneurs, which is who at least microcredit is traditionally targeted towards. But what it does is that it makes the financial lives of poor people easier, which I think is also important. So the best research on this question about, you know, does what does microfinance actually do comes from randomized controlled trials where researchers randomly assign certain people to receive microloans. And a lot of this work has been conducted by Esther DeFlo uh, and Abjit Banerjee, who together also won the Nobel Prize in Economics. And in one of their studies, uh, these authors and their colleagues randomly assigned certain people in India to participate in group-based microfinance. And they had comparable others who were randomly assigned not to receive any microfinance. And what they found was that for the people who were assigned to receive microfinance, those people did in fact invest more in their small businesses, not a huge amount, but a modest amount. However, it didn't have any long-term effects on things that we often think microfinance might affect. So things like health, children's education, women's empowerment, uh, they really didn't see any differences between these two groups. So, you know, to the extent that we are concerned about micro business owners having capital to invest in their business, microfinance is really important and does seem to have a strong impact there. But I think we would be overestimating the effects of this practice if we thought that it really, you know, powerfully alleviated poverty. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So in your last question, you brought up the point that microfinance does not play as big of a role as we expected in women empowerment. Can you maybe tell us how, in theory, would microfinance empower women? Yeah, you know, I think anytime you give women control over financial resources, this is an act of empowerment. And I think in the case of microfinance, it's actually micro savings rather than micro credit that can be particularly powerful. 
poor people often struggle to save even very small sums of money, in part because other people are often hitting them up for money. Uh, and for women in particular, this, this is a real challenge. So having a savings account where they can store extra cash allows them to deflect these requests because they can honestly say that they don't have any cash on them. And it's it's amazing how important that is. So I did research on a large-scale micro-savings program in Colombia in Latin America, and many of the women I spoke with talked about their kids asking them for candy at the store or their partners asking them to borrow extra cash. And if the little extra cash that they had was somewhere outside the house where they could credibly claim that they could not access it, this meant that they were better able to save money. So these are small changes, but they do allow women, I think, to have more control over their own financial situation than they might otherwise. Thank you. That was a good answer. So now we put the theory into the actual practice. So what positive benefits has microfinance actually achieved in the lower developed countries in the past? I think that the biggest positive effect that microfinance has had is in making financial tools that used to be accessible only to wealthy people, things like loans and private accounts, accessible to people who are poor. So in other words, what it's done to address inequality is to address an access gap, so access to finance. And a lot of people now talk about this using the term financial inclusion um, or making formal financial products accessible to low-income people who want to use them. But if you're asking, does having access to small loans and inexpensive private accounts dramatically reduce income gaps in less developed countries, we can pretty definitively say that it does not. Uh, we don't see these major quantitative shifts among populations of people who have access to these services and people who don't. But what we do see are qualitative changes in quality of life. Having access to these accounts makes people's lives often a lot easier. I mean, I don't know about you, but I like, you know, being able to access a loan from a bank so that I can, you know, buy a house. I like having a private checking account so that my employer can deposit money there and I don't have to keep cash at home. These things make my life easier. They save me time. They probably save me a bit of money, um, but it's not the kind of money on the scale where we would see dramatic reductions in income gaps. It's it's more about making people's lives a bit easier. I completely agree with you. I also like to see bank accounts and also <laughs> having access to my bank account. <laughs> you know, I, if 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 you and I like it, it's reasonable that other people would also find it convenient. So I more think likely than <laughs> not. <laughs> I want to go back to your research in Colombia. So I think you said there's some reasons that people choose to not be included in these microfinancing programs, but instead they go to informal sectors. Can you maybe tell us why that is the case? Yes. So this was some research that my co-author and I found 
very surprising. So my co-author, her name is Kristen McNeil. She was a graduate student at the time, and now she's a professor at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. Uh, and she and I were initially very puzzled by what we found in this research in Colombia. So we had partnered with the Colombian government's Ministry of Financial Inclusion, and they were running this national micro savings program with over 50,000 participants all across Colombia. Uh, and I was so excited to look at the data when they first came in. And along with our government partners, we were expecting that the program would have two effects on people who participated. So one, we thought that people were gonna save more money than they had before, which makes sense. It's a micro savings program. Mm -hmm. And two, we thought they'd become more interested in formal financial products. And this was because they had more capital. And so we anticipated that they would want to use uh, financial tools to, to protect that capital. But that's not what happened. We found that people were indeed very successful in saving money, but they became less interested in formal financial products like formal checking accounts, formal banking accounts, formal loans uh, over the course of the program. And so we were just totally puzzled by this. Fortunately, we had done a lot of ethnographic observations, uh, which just means we, we sat in on the savings groups and watched what happened and we interviewed participants. And what we found was that during the meetings, participants interacted with one another in ways that the government really hadn't expected when they were designing the program. And in particular, what they did was they shared a lot of personal experiences, as well as secondhand stories about banks that were really negative. And these stories often circulated. Some of them may have been true. A lot of them we, we actually sort of know to be likely untrue or apocryphal. But because this information was flowing within these networks, People came to see banks as institutions that were pretty risky. So rather than mitigating risk, they saw them as institutions that actually created more risk. So they lost interest in storing their hard-earned savings there, even as they actually had more money to save. So, so I think what this research teaches us is that the stories that people hear about the financial sector, whether or not they are true, are going to affect people's interest and willingness to engage with them. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty interesting. Has there has there been improvements since the experiment? Well, the program has ended, so there's not really anything to improve upon at the moment. But I think there was a lot of learning in the sense that people, you know, just hadn't anticipated the type of information that was going to be circulating in the context of these meetings. Mm -hmm. What are some of the major drawbacks that you see in the current microfinance landscape? Mm, I think when people are designing microfinance products and programs, they often don't anticipate how relational and social our experience of finance actually is. So like the example that I just described suggests, the casual stories that we hear about finance powerfully influence whether or not we want to engage with financial institutions. I've also done research that shows that the nature of the relationship between microfinance clients and their loan officers has a really powerful effect on clients' loan repayment. And when we think of finance, we often think about other non-social factors like interest rates or loan sizes affecting um, 
our, our financial behavior. But I think, you know, finance is a surprisingly social activity. And I think we have to account for that in the way that we design products. And so, you know, an example of this is I'm currently working with my partners in the Colombian government to think about how we can close the gender gap and access to credit in, in Colombia. And one idea that we are currently considering is whether the language that financial institutions use in describing their products may be tailored to sort of entice women who are entrepreneurs and who, who need capital to access loans. So for instance, if you describe a microloan as something, you know, that A, can help you purchase more merchandise for your business, or B, help you grow your business and support your family, it might be the case that people who see information about loans in a very relational context, this is going to help you support your family, may be more interested in using that capital. We don't know yet, but that's, I think, the kind of direction that we should be thinking in. Definitely, definitely. It definitely sounds like you come from a sociology background uh, when <laughs> approaching microfinance. <laughs> so you talked about the relationship between the loan officers and the microfinance clients can affect the loan repayment. That sounds very interesting. Can you maybe expand on this topic a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So in a lot of commercial microfinance, loan officers, in order to evaluate, it's not group-based. So it's not this mutual accountability group model that we see in non not-for-profit style microfinance. The loan officer goes out to a client's home, and because they don't have formal credit history, usually the loan officer will spend a few hours with them, asking them all sorts of questions, talking to their family, talking to their neighbors. And the official Justification for this is information gathering, but what also happens here is relationship building and the clients, if they receive a loan, often feeling very grateful and indebted to the loan officer who came to their home, less indebted to the financial institution itself. So what I've seen in my research is that when clients are randomly switched from their originating loan officers to a new loan officer their repayment rates get much worse. And, you know, again, this is something that we would think shouldn't really matter. Their interest rates have remained the same, the size of their loan, the length of their loan, none of that has changed. It's just the person who they associate with the loan has changed. And that has a powerful effect on their, their repayment behavior. So these relationships are, are really powerfully embedded in these financial processes. Wow, I think that could also be a lesson for the modern banks just to have better relationship with their clients, maybe they'll have a higher repayment rate. It's totally possible, yeah. I think so. And last question for you. So going forward, what do you think are the key areas of focus to make microfinance more effective? Yes. So I think one direction that is really interesting and exciting is seeing more microfinance products aimed at people in more advanced economies. So for instance, the lending institution Kiva, uh, where you know people can go online and directly make, or, or through Kiva, make a loan to a micro entrepreneur, often in a developing country, that Kiva now allows people to make loans to low-income people in developed countries like the United States. I think this is a really interesting development because 
low-income folks in the U.S. and in Canada often rely on financial services that are often called fringe banking, uh, I'm using air quotes here, like check cashing services. And these places often have really high fees. So I think to the extent that we can create products that one, meet people's financial needs, and two, account for the web of relationships in which their financial actions take place, I think that's a really exciting direction for the field. That's something to look forward to in the future. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today, Laura. Yeah, thank you, Vicky. Once again, that was Professor Laura Doring, who joined us for a discussion on microfinance. For those who just tuned in, you're listening to Beyond the Headlines. We are a weekly public affairs talk show that airs every Monday at 11 a.m. on CIUT 89.5 in Toronto, online through our website and across podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This week, we are discussing the role of social enterprises and microfinance in solving global development issues and their future impact on reducing inequalities. Have you enjoyed the conversation so far and want to add your voice? Send us a tweet at beyond underscore headlines. If you have any suggestions or feedback for our show, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for tuning in for Beyond the Headlines. Our next guest is Professor Musa Blimpo. He is an assistant professor of economic inequality and societies at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. He was a senior economist in the Africa Chief Economist Office at the World Bank. At the World Bank, Musa led research programs on electricity access and digital development in Africa, publishing key reports such as Electricity Access in Sub-Saharan Africa in 2019 or Technological Transformation for Jobs in Africa. His work on these issues emphasizes the role of political economy and access for productive use. His research addresses various issues including education and labor economics, infrastructure and taxation in developing economies. Professor Blimpo's recent work explores the issue of taxation, especially in the informal sector, and the nexus between economic development and climate implications in African economies. Thank you, Professor Blimpo, for joining us today to talk about the impact of microfinance in the field of development. So to start things off, What are your thoughts on microfinancing being a good way to alleviate poverty in the global south and how do you think policymakers approach this issue? Uh, First of all, let me thank you for uh, this conversation. Uh, It's a great opportunity to get to talk to you about this important issue. Uh, So microcredit and financial inclusion can help in alleviating poverty, but it's certainly not going to be a panacea, right? Uh, I would even argue that uh, financial inclusion and microcredit are some of the multiple symptoms of underdevelopment. And there is a long list of symptoms of underdevelopment, right? We have study now that are showing that merely giving a bank account to the poor and celebrating at a global stage about the number of people who have gained access to a financial instrument uh, may mean nothing if those bank accounts aren't being used and helping those poor. And it's been documented now 
that many um, who gain access to these financial instruments do not actually use them. So it can help and is helping many, but we have to pay attention about the dynamics and how things are evolving uh, to be able to push it in the right direction for greater impact. Now, the second layer of answer to this question that you are asking is also to understand that you know, the Global South is looking for something much more than just alleviating poverty, right? There is a large and often useful population that is looking for something that is a decent level, decent level of uh, uh, prosperity. And if you are able to achieve that, inevitably you are going to eradicate poverty as well, right? Uh, but to do that, nothing is going to replace a concerted effort uh, focus on trying to generate sustained economic growth, uh, inclusive economic growth, and a lot of time with pro-social policies uh, that will make the dent. And anything that is not contributing toward that uh, may be even a distraction, I would call it. And that's why, in my case, I often talked about credit rather than microcredit. There is a broader credit issue that we need to focus on. And microcredit is a subcomponent and a very important one, but a subcomponent. And we don't want that to just draw all the attention. Yeah. And so then can you tell us like a little bit more about the impact that so far microcredit has had on small businesses and particularly when we look at women entrepreneurs? So there I would say that it's a it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag and we have to be careful not to take failures and generalize them and say bad thing about microcredit or take some successes and then generalize it also that both both of these instances will cause harm uh, in the south we have to be very nuanced it's a mixed bag in so many ways because uh, the small businesses that you talked about here if you look closely oftentimes they are actually micro enterprises they will not even qualify as small businesses in the formal definition of what small businesses are. Many have self-employed home production, actually, right? So people who are basically uh, making end meet on the day-to-day, week-to-week basis. So if you give them access to credit, inevitably it's going to help. But you have to also understand that when they face a shock, for example, a child getting sick or some natural disaster, they have to restart over. They will have to default. And then in that case, it cannot be a success. So overall, it's a mixed bag. If you focus exclusively on the welfare effect of uh, financial inclusion and microcredit, there is inevitable that you're going to see positive impact. You know, if I borrow money so that I can run my business and I end up using that money to save my child who's sick, well, my business may have failed. I may not have been able to pay back the loan, but I saved my child. And that is a positive thing, right? Uh, but the reality is that on the financial side, uh, the math may not add up. So we need to pay careful attention. That's why we need research. We need to try to understand the direction in which uh, uh, these, uh, um, uh, these microcredit initiative, financial inclusion initiative need to take uh, to make a difference. So, but one thing we can say for sure, and I always come back to that, is that overall, it cannot be transformative. It cannot be uh, a panacea. We have to think about the broader credit uh, market if uh, we're trying to make a big difference in the global south. Okay, um, so then switching gears a little bit, um, given the rapid growth of the fintech sector, 
Can you shed some light on the role of fintech in microfinance and what its future impact would look like for our listeners? So this is really a great question uh, because the uh, the information and communication technology, the ICTs and the digital eras brought a new life to uh, this financial inclusion and the microcredit um, uh, in, uh, initiative. Uh, to understand why it's making a difference is that you have to step back and see that microcredit in reality cannot be financially viable with a reasonably low interest charge for loans, right? Because the transaction costs are just too high. The transaction costs are high to um, to kind of service very small amount of money that you are giving uh, to the poor. What fintech has done is that it has cut significantly that uh, um, transaction cost. So you have a lot of financial transactions now that can be done on your fingertip. And the poor, the, the poor also have access to cell phone, even in the global south. That's one of the great success. The, the cell phone penetration has been phenomenal over the years. So the fintechs really cut into that and make it possible for microcredit to be more financially viable. But it can only do that much. Uh, the transaction costs remain still relatively high. We need more innovation. We need uh, you know, the young people, the entrepreneur, to come up with new ideas that will help cut further uh, these, um, uh, these financial transactions. So there is hope there that uh, uh, we could see even new uh, financial instruments. So people are able today, you know, to through their cell phone, uh, pay their bills, but you know the the cell phone company is also indirectly serving almost like a bank, so they can use the phone, the, the 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 credit that they have on their phone for phone call to make other transactions, right? So these are all innovative areas, but it's relatively new and it's really hopeful for uh, for the future. Uh, but then we also always have to pay attention to unintended consequences. So one thing we are seeing already is that fintech make, make it possible for people to take very small loans, very small amount, right? And then so they get very quickly into an area where there is an issue of debt sustainability that causes a lot of stress, a lot of challenges. So I think there is a hope for the future, but we need a lot more innovation. And uh, then some of the innovation that may require internet will also pose some challenges because unlike the cell phone penetration that is very high, internet access in places like uh, Africa is still in the tw- in the mid twenty percent. Uh, so it's relatively low. So we have a long way to go, but it's a promising future nevertheless. Yeah. Yeah, I think with the growth of fintech, um, there are like possibilities of like more innovation to come in the future. But this is definitely, I feel like, a step in the right direction. Absolutely. So now looking at like the bigger picture, do you think that microfinance then does more harm than good in the grand scheme of things? Um, and does it then really solve the problem of financial inclusion? And if it doesn't, like what other ways can we look at this problem? So... This is another great question, um, and and it's a challenging one. It's going to be hard for anyone to just say flat out that, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, microcredit is bad or is good for that matter, right? Uh, what I could say is two things, right? Uh, first of all, you know, there, there were some earlier attractive features of microcredit 
that we learn over time that were not necessarily a good thing, including group lending. You know, some studies have shown that it creates tension among the, the, the group and it can erode social, um, uh, social capital. We learn about that, right? Uh, some studies have shown that maybe it doesn't make all that much difference focusing on women or enterprises, which was one area because you thought that the money will then be used more responsibly or the money will be used for production rather than for consumption, which will then allow them to repay. But studies have shown that this doesn't make a big difference. Recall what I was telling you earlier, right? You borrow the money for a business, but your child gets sick. What are you going to do? Um, you're going to take care of your child. So that's the life of the poor is a very challenging life that uh, and very challenging constraint that they face. So there's been a lot of issues on microcredit over the years that we've learned and we've addressed. Even if we still remember and talk about some of these issues, we are in a relatively different place today. So there's been a lot of improvement that happened. Where I see a problem with microcredit, that could tilt the balance for me to say that in the grand scheme of things, it may be a net negative, um, is when, in, especially in the development con community, when it comes to the global south, we jump straight to talk about microcredit instead of talking about the credit issue, right? That is a big credit issue that needs to be dealt with. It's not because it's a poor country that we should just talk about microcredit. And part of the reason is because if medium enterprises and young entrepreneurs who have their startup and their ideas, they do not have access to easy financing as you would have in Canada here or in the United States or in the developed West, right? So if we don't pay attention to those, whereas that's where jobs are going to be created, jobs that will then hire the poor so that they can have money to put that money in that bank account that you are giving to them, then it could become um, a, a problem. But I'm not in a position to, today to say that uh, there is an overemphasis on microcredit, but that's one area I think we'll have to pay attention and make sure that we still keep an eye on the broader credit market. Businesses aren't being financed to the extent that they should. Young entrepreneurs don't have opportunities to put their ideas to task. Microcredit is also needed, but if we put 90% of our effort on microcredit, then I will say that that will be detrimental. So we need to find the right balance uh, to keep an eye on the, on, on the effort that these countries are take, undertaking to put themselves in a better place five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now. And that will require a broader approach rather than a narrow focus on specific areas like microcredit. I guess they are, that definitely makes more sense. So now I guess we have realized that no change can happen in a vacuum. And then there are like a lot of different moving blocks that will affect the implementation of a policy framework. In the case of microfinance, do you see any other resources or any other policies as complementary to improving the effectiveness of the current model that we have? And could you like shed some light on your work and your research that could have supported some of these conclusions? So I, I teach... Uh, uh, development. I've taught development for years now, so I always I you know I'm on top of these issues. But my some of my own research do not necessarily directly touch on that. I've done some work recently on the digital, and in that space we talk about fintech and you know the financial sectors. But what I would say that you know pertaining to the first part of your question in terms of uh, the gap and complementarities that I see. 
I see one massive gap where we need to find a way to maybe through policy or through some kind of innovation to fill. You have a situation where even when microcredits succeed to take a micro enterprises to a level where they can take off, uh, you end up with a group of enterprises that will end up being too big for microcredit institution, but still too small for the regular banks, right? So that gap is, I think, one of the areas that we need to find a way to fill that gap, and I think then we will make a lot more uh, difference, right? Um, maybe part of it is the regulation. The regulation vary from one country to another. The rules that apply to the regular big bank are not the same that apply to the microcredit uh, institution. Maybe there are some cons policy concessions and all that that they benefit. But if they cannot uh, carry on with uh, their successes and take these enterprises to a level where they can create more jobs, and then these enterprises get stuck somewhere in the middle where they cannot benefit from the regular banks, and then they're also too big for the small loans from the uh, micro credit institution, I think that will be the challenge. And I think that's, for me, that's the area where I think we need to innovate more. Our policymakers need to think about ways to fill that middle gap. And that's uh, um, where I see, um, you know, complementarity and additional policies making a difference in this space. Okay. So I think we have realized that just looking at microfinance as its uh, own model is not enough and that we need to look at like other factors as well in order to see that it actually does lead to a positive uh, impact. So thank you so much for your time, Professor. And I'm sure that our listeners would have benefited from listening to our conversation today. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Once again, that was Professor Musa Blimpo who joined us for a discussion on the future of microfinance and its developmental impact. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. That wraps up our show for this week. We were joined today by Professor Anne Armstrong, Professor Laura Doring, and Professor Musa Blimpo. Many thanks to them for coming onto the show to share their knowledge on social enterprises and microfinance and their function in reducing inequality and facilitating global development. Today's show was produced by myself, Yashri Sharma, alongside my co-producer, Vicky Lee. If you liked today's episode, please like and review us wherever you're listening. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.